0: You're listening to Coaching for Leaders. This is episode number 55, airing on September 17th, 2012. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to Coaching for Leaders. This is the show for leaders who want to improve themselves so they can better engage and develop others. Whether you're a seasoned leader or leading people for the first time, Improving your leadership skills will drive your success, and most importantly, the success of others. This week's topic, how to lead in a crisis. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Coaching for Leaders. My name is Dave Stehoviak, and I'm coming to you from our studio out here in Orange County, California, where, like many places in the world, the economy has not recovered. And in fact, it has been a very challenging economic situation here in Orange County for the past three, four, five years, really, like many, many places in North America and across the globe. And it has been a very challenging time for organizations here as it has been in many places around the world for a whole host of reasons, uh, economic related and otherwise. And that's one of the reasons that I've been meaning to look at for some time is how leaders have worked through the challenges that face them in their organizations these days, and in some cases, the crises that they are facing and how they've worked through those challenges and crises as a leader. And, you know, we could look at that in a whole bunch of different ways. One of them is we could look at all the theories and research and books that have been written about this, but I think it's far more powerful to be able to share stories with you of leaders who have walked through those challenging times and have emerged from those challenges and crises and certainly as stronger leaders and in some cases of having stronger organizations because of it. Now, those of you who listen regularly will remember that my wife, Bonnie, is a professor at Vanguard University and she speaks often about it on the show when she is a guest. And uh, Bonnie just loves her work at Vanguard and you've heard her say some wonderful things about the university in past episodes. What you may not know if you're not familiar with Vanguard is that Vanguard, like many organizations these days, has been through some very challenging times. And in particular, about four years ago, back in 2008, Vanguard went through Uh, not only challenging times, but uh, many people at the school would call uh, the times that Vanguard went through truly a crisis. And my guest today, Carol Taylor, was asked to step in as president as this crisis emerged. And she has been leading Vanguard University ever since. And I'm so pleased to tell you that Vanguard has had some wonderful successes since walking through this crisis. Her story. I think is such a powerful story, and I was so pleased to hear recently that she had written a chapter in a book that has just come out on her journey through this crisis, and I asked her about a week ago if she would be willing to sit down and to share her story, and I'm so pleased to tell you that she was willing and agreed to sit down with me late last week and share her story of leadership and uh, and guiding Vanguard through this time. And I wanted to share this story with you today, and I'm so glad that Carol agreed to share the story. One, because it's such a powerful story, and I think you'll find that as you listen to it. But secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, I hope an inspiration to you, particularly those of you who find yourselves in situations leading organizations that are going through challenging times, that are going through crises, that have had to make very difficult uh, personnel, financial, budgetary decisions, and are struggling with that. And if that is you, I encourage you to absolutely be sure to listen to this full interview. Uh, My interview with Carol here is about 40 minutes, so it's a little longer than uh, an episode that I would normally air But I think you'll find that every minute of this interview will provide value for you as a leader and I believe will be a a story that will take you into your week being inspired to lead your organization and your team in a phenomenal way. Here's my interview with Carol Taylor. I'm pleased to welcome as my guest today Carol Taylor. Dr. Carol Taylor is the ninth president and first female president of Vanguard University. She's recently been recognized as one of the 20 women to watch by the OC Metro and is also the recipient of the 2011 Women in Business Award presented by the Orange County Business Journal. And most recently, she's the author of Leading a Turnaround and The Joy of a Third Class Ticket, a chapter appearing in Thriving Leadership. Strategies for Making a Difference in Christian Higher Education, edited by Karen Longman. Carol, thank you so much for being here today and joining me on Coaching for Leaders.
1: My pleasure.
0: You know, not everyone in our listening audience would be familiar with the situation that Vanguard found itself in four years ago. And I was wondering if you could frame what happened at Vanguard and the challenges that the university faced.
1: Sure. Well, if you remember fall of 2008... Um, there was a lot of drama in the economic world. there was. and um, and so we had a school that faced a significant um, fiscal crisis. You know, that reached out into other areas. And so the situation was we were at risk of losing our accreditation. Hmm. Um We had dramatic headlines in the local press that uh, was, making dire predictions about what would be the future of the university. Um, As you might imagine, what comes with that then are parents that are very concerned about, will the school still be here for my son or daughter to graduate? Should I send my son or daughter to the school? So we found ourselves not only as part of the, there was this economic meltdown at a national level, a major crisis facing the university that threatened our existence.
0: And for those who may not appreciate the importance of accreditation for a university, um, why is that such a central piece of, of Vanguard's existence?
1: It's the validation of any institution that you are meeting quality educational standards. Um, it's, uh, you know, parents will not choose a school generally for their son or daughter to attend that doesn't have accreditation. mm so for any student, for example, any student earning an undergraduate degree that would like to go on to pursue graduate education or transfer from your institution to another institution, one of the first things that any other institution would look at is, are these credits, is this degree being awarded by an institution that has accreditation?
0: So this, is, this was really a dire situation for Vanguard to be in at the time.
1: It was very dire, Yes.
0: Tell me the story of the third-class ticket.
1: The third-class ticket yeah, story? Yeah. yeah. So, actually, this was a story that um, that was told at my inauguration, ah. which we had actually delayed... Um, to get the university to a, a better place, so we we kept everyone focused on the hard work that needed to be done. Sure. And so, just as as I was being presented the medallion that the president wears at all official functions of the university, um, the gentleman who was who was presenting that told the story of a third class ticket. So so the story goes, you know, in in our early history, wild west history, you know, those that traveled with the Concord stagecoach, you could actually purchase one of three tickets. Hmm. So if you purchased a first class ticket, that earned you a privileged seat in the coach, where if for any reason the coach had to stop, you could retain your seat inside where you could stay out of harm's way. Um, You could be comfortable if you got stuck in the mud, you could retain your seat and not have to you know, soil your hands or get in the mud to help help push. So that was the most privileged seat in the coach. Hmm. You could also purchase a second class ticket, which still got you a good seat in the coach. However, if the coach got in trouble, you would actually have to disembark, but you didn't have to do anything. You could stand along the side of the road. You could watch other people do the work, but you wouldn't have to dirty your hands or inconvenience yourself in any way. Hmm. However, if you had a third class ticket, you had the least desirable seat. And if there was any danger, you were expected to disembark without complaint, roll your sleeves up, push, pull, fight, whatever, to help get the coach moving again. So at the inauguration, this story was told. And as I was presented the medallion, um with the word congratulations you now have a third class ticket. Hmm. You know if you think about it it it's a great metaphor and image of um of leadership.
2: Oh and, yeah. And
1: you know so you look at the literature that talks about leading from the middle it doesn't hold the seat of privilege but you're actually there to to serve others and right. and engage in the work. So so that day I felt I officially accepted a third class ticket. And that was the ticket that the president would hold.
0: Wow, <laughs> you, um, you write in your chapter about the day that you received the letter from the commission about what Vanguard would need to do to keep its accreditation. And you write, after reading the commission's letter on a Friday, for the first time I said out loud, we might not make it. In fact, I wondered if I would be providing hospice care for an entire institution. I'm wondering what that moment was like for you and why it was important to acknowledge that to yourself.
1: Um, it, it was dire. You know, it, it, it was looking at the possibility of a school that might die. Um, not unlike if you've had a family member and you've received a dire medical report, and and mm. and that's why I, I thought of hospice because I had just prior to coming to Vanguard University had had provided hospice care for my brother.
2: Mm.
1: So I, th- I think at that moment, um, reading the letter, it it was so dire. I mean, they made it clear that we could be looking at the loss of our accreditation and and the work that we had to do in such a short period of time was impossible and and so just the weight of the reality of the situation mm. weighed very heavily and um, it was not unlike getting the call at night and saying it's cancer it's stage 4 mm. it's really bad and, and I think feeling the weight of if, if the school failed how do you care for it well or is it a call to roll up your sleeves, jump in and say, we're going to give it everything we have mm. and just, and commit to that journey? Yeah. I don't know if I, did you, ask, you had a second part to that question, didn't you?
0: Yeah. Why it, why was that important to acknowledge at that point? Why was it important to acknowledge?
2: Yeah.
1: You know, I like probably many leaders that have read good to great and great by choice. and 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 then the book that came out later that I wish had actually been written in Follow 8 by Collins, How the Mighty Fall and Why Some Companies Never Give In. Mm. But a lot of leadership books talk about how critically important it is to face the brutal facts of reality. Mm. So part of why I think it was important to acknowledge that was coming to grips with what, what was ahead for the school and, and what was at risk if we failed and, and just the weight of the reality of that.
0: It's interesting you mention that because you also write, the temptation is to minimize the bleakness of the situation, soften the language of the critic, or the crisis, ignore reality, hope the situation will get better on its own, or make modest changes around the fringes while avoiding the magnitude of the issues that contributed to the crisis. How did you lead the people around you to avoid that temptation you speak of?
1: Well, you know, I never really thought much about, you know, how am I going to lead people around this? Um, I stood up and read the letter. I mean, so, so, yeah. so the, 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 what we were facing, actually, we had someone else that I think later in that chapter, I talk about if you can't face the reality, you'll have someone else that will define it for you. Mm. Um, so actually, and then through that kind of the song we sang was don't, well, if we have a crisis, don't waste it. Um, it's amazing how motivating it can be to take on the magnitude of work that you have to do when that work is clear when the option is death. Um, you know in, in some respects, leading later once once you're through that crisis that's life threatening is actually more difficult than leading through that particular time. Hmm. I think the challenge is, is how how do you in the community that you're leading, how do you help the community face the reality that you have? And we still have, you know, some today who would say it it was never as dire as, as, as it was, but how do you do that in a way that still brings hope, right? Because, because if, if it's so dire and there's actually no hope of surviving, people won't take the journey with you. Hmm. So it's where, where do you find the inspiration? Where do you find the, the reason, the call to, to do the hard thing and, and something for a cause that is bigger than yourself, that makes the journey worth the risk of taking.
0: Hmm. Attending an evening of a conference that was hosted by Vanguard's Global Center for Women and Justice was a pivotal moment for you that you talk about. What happened that evening?
1: Uh, it, you know, th- this was a really, really difficult week. You know, we we were in the middle of, we had a matter of just a couple of months to do massive changes. And I mean, things that for a university are unheard of in, in doing in a short period of time. And, uh, and I had just come out of a very, very intense emergency board meeting. And, uh, and I'd been asked to come this evening, the opening of the conference, and introduce our speaker, who was an alum of the university. Mm. Um, kind of lurking behind all of the work we were doing is, is, is a fundamental question of why, why go through what you need to go through to save you know whether it's a university or a business or whatever organization that that you're working to pull through a crisis. Sure. And actually, Simon Sinek wrote this great book that you start with why. And so I was I was wrestling with the question. So why 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 save Vanguard? You know we've got over four thousand colleges and universities in this country. So what difference does it make if if a small private liberal arts college liberal arts college fails? Lots of other options for students. So, so that question had been lurking for me. Um, you know, I thought I knew the answer to the question, but but there are a lot because we're a private faith-based school. And there are mm-hmm. other good private faith-based schools, even in Southern California. Uh, so that evening, I introduce Esther um, Intoto, an alum, who she and her husband spend their lives in um, the the Eastern Congo, where they are investing their lives on a daily basis, living at risk on a daily basis to care for women and children who have survived some of the most unimaginable horrific violence that has occurred in this war torn region. I mean, they're having an incredible impact on policy issues at a national level and then, you know, boots on the ground caring for women and children. She was our plenary speaker that evening. Hmm. And so I kept my promise and I went and welcomed everyone. And then I thought, you know, I just have to sit down now and, and I'm done for the night. But I sat there that evening and listened to her story and just got a glimpse of the work that they're doing. And as I got on the, we're in Southern California. So if you don't live right near the campus, you get on a freeway. So as I got on the freeway that evening to drive home, I couldn't help but weep, you know, first for, this war-torn region of the world, mm. and and the families that have been violated and torn apart, and the devastation, and, and for this dear couple, and the work that they feel called to do mm. to care for, um, in particular, these women and children. But what struck me in the most powerful way was that's why Vanguard had to survive, because that's what we produce. Uh. Um, you know, so we don't produce widgets. We don't produce microchips. We don't produce, um, you know, technology. What we produce are men and women who've been educated. And, and at the heart of the mission of the institution is a vision to equip men and women to serve, Mm. you know, whether that's in the sacrificial way that, um, that, Esther and Camille serve, or whether it's in a corporate boardroom, but serving with integrity and character where the work you're doing is not just to line your pockets, although we appreciate wealth, especially if it comes from an alum investing back in the school. right? Of course. But, but the sense that, that we live to serve others, yeah. You know, whether that's in education or in the arts or in business or somewhere in a remote place around the globe and it was it was for me just this powerful moment of discovering and that's why for me that's the story i hung on to that said and that's why we cannot we cannot close this institution because mm. that would leave in colin's terms a gaping hole in the world and it provided for me the inspiration to keep going mm. and and led me then to go and dig out all of our alumni magazines and continue reading the stories of what our graduates are doing, you know, Hmm. the incredible work that they're doing, the incredible places that they serve. And it became the inspiration to say, that's why we fight on.
0: Wow. You write that the challenge for a leader is to find and maintain a quiet center from which clarity, focus, and calm sustain not only the leader, but also the others in the midst of the storm. How did you do that?
1: Well, you notice I said it's the challenge. I didn't <laughs> say I did it, but it. it
0: <laughs> I had a feeling you
2: it, might say it's, that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the challenge to try to, try to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, it's still a challenge to find those places of quiet. Yeah. For me, it's a set of spiritual disciplines, mm. it, it's um, spending time in meditation. For me, it's spending time, you know, in reading good literature, reading inspirational literature, Mm. um, reading the Bible, praying, practicing those disciplines. It's spending time with others who nurture your soul. You know, there are some people that seem to like take the oxygen out of the room and and there are others that you spend time with them and you feel refreshed and renewed and Mm. and they speak life into your lives and- Mm. Doing that, for me also, I intentionally schedule retreat times. Um, you know, some are just a day away. I relish the opportunities that I have to take a longer time, like a three to five day retreat, where there's no cell phone, there's no email, and it's just solitude and quiet, and and you can actually get quiet enough to hear yourself think. Mm. But I, yeah, I don't, I haven't mastered that. Um, there are some writers that, that talk about, they use the metaphor of a dance floor and, and saying you can be down on the floor kind of in the dance,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but to keep perspective, any leader has to have times when they pull away, you know, you get up on the balcony where you can look down and you have a broader perspective. You can see what's happening. You can maybe see the moves you need to make and it, it's that constant kind of in and out you know, especially if you're committed to leading with a third-class ticket, which means your sleeves are rolled up and you're kind of yeah. in the thick of it. Yeah. Um. But so, it, so if one of one of your listeners has figured that out, how to do that on a consistent basis, I'd love to hear. It. It. It's hard.
0: Yeah. It's. Yeah. It's. It's a. I, so many of us struggle with this, and I'm. I'm struck, Carol, by how often on this show the topic has come up of leaders needing to care for themselves as much as they care for the people around them and mm-hmm. the importance of and the, the real importance of doing that
1: well and I think for me the struggle is to realize that that's not a selfish act mm-hmm. so it it, it it struck me you know if you fly much it and we often ignore the first part of you know all the safety features and mm-hmm. but there's always this instruction that if if the plane gets in trouble and there's a loss of oxygen, and the masks drop down. The instruction is always: you before you turn, to help your traveling companion or your child, whoever you're with, mm-hmm. you have to put your own oxygen on first, because if if you're not getting that oxygen, you won't be any help to um, the one you're trying to serve. So, mm-hmm. so it's it's not. And I, I, you know, I struggle with this. I have to remind myself it is not a selfish thing to take a retreat day. It is not a selfish thing to take an evening to spend with friends that are going to speak life and, mm. and, and just to step away from it.
0: I know there have been many successes for Vanguard in the past four years since this time. There's also have been losses. What did you do to respond to loss when it happened?
1: um i wept there you know when when you're saving an institution especially one that's had an economic crisis i mean for us a painful part of that meant we had to learn with li- to live within our means part of that meant we had to say goodbye to some programs to some people who who had been you know members of the community mm um, I remember that day when we announced, here's how we're going to live with three and a half million less in our budget next year. Wow. And it means within the next 48 hours, we will say goodbye to. It. On that day, it was close to 30 members of our community, and we're a small community. You know, these were men and women who loved Vanguard. And I, th- I think it's important to, to realize those are very real losses. And it's not only okay, it's a good thing to mourn the loss oh. and, and to feel that loss. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're paralyzed and immobilized, that you can't go on. But we need to recognize the sacrifices that people make at great cost. I, I remember that day, we, you know, it felt like going to a funeral. Mm. It, it was such a difficult day. Um, unfortunately, as you've said, we've had some wonderful days since then. Yeah. Um, but it, at the end of that day, as I was exiting, it was actually one of our professors, and and I was going to be delivering a number of those notices myself. But it was one of our psychology professors that came up to me at the at the end of that time and handed me an old, tattered postcard. And I remembered thinking like of all the things that someone might hand me at this moment that was you know not anything I was expecting
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I I looked at it and the, actually I brought a copy of it
0: oh it is a picture of, it, uh, it, five, it is it is a men. it is
1: a postcard of five world war one disabled veterans and it was taped and it was tattered and it was old huh and the caption at the top just said disabled vets in route to disabled vets convention in San Francisco, 1922. So I looked at this professor and I'm, you know, I'm kind of like so, you know, so there must be a story here. There uh-huh. must be a reason you're handing me this postcard. And so he pointed to the the second gentleman on the right. And he said, That was my grandfather. I'm named for him. Mm. And he told me about um, him joining the Marines as a, a young eighteen-year-old ended up in in one of the worst battles of the war in France, the Battle of Belleau Wood, that ended up being renamed the Forest of the Fallen Soldier, mm. and how his his grandfather was shot down, the number of Marines that were lost that day, um, and then how he ended up laying there bleeding for the next 10 hours waiting for someone to come and find him and then spent something like three of the next years in a hospital in France and getting Purple Hearts and all of these awards. And, and he said he's, he's buried at the National Cemetery in Point Loma. And he said at least once a year I take my family there and I tell them you have the blood of a hero in your veins. And I carry this postcard so whenever I think I'm having a bad day I pull it out and I look at it Mm -hmm. and I said, you know, I've never had a really bad day. Like the day my grandfather had that day. And he said, so I just wanted to give you this postcard this week because I thought maybe you could use it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was an incredible gift. Um, And I actually tucked it under my pad of paper. And there were several times in the next two days as I met and had hard, painful conversations that I pulled it out. And I looked at this postcard, and I said, "You know, I'm not having such a bad day."
0: You have a book in your office titled "Change Is Good." You go first. Oh
1: yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Which I, yeah.
0: I love that title. Yeah. <laughs> how did you, uh, how did you engage people to, if not embrace change, be willing to accept change?
1: Well, those are two really different things, aren't they? They are. Yeah and, yeah, and actually, it's just a it's a it's a fun little book of different quotations. And but the, and the reason I I stuck it up there is because that's really the way we think about change. Change is great as long as it's you that's doing the changes, yeah. right?
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like
1: I I am so eager to tell you how you should change what you do, but just don't mess with my stuff, right? Right. Um, I mean, the, there's a reason. There's a mountain of literature and research on leading change because it is so hard it, to do it well. Um, you know, I, I think, and I don't know that I do it well. In fact, I'm pretty sure I could introduce you to some folks who would say, you know, it was the worst thing that ever happened to the school. And, mm-hmm. But the reality is when when you're facing possible death, you know, people will change. I mean, it, it really is very powerful to say, you know, we can make these changes or we can choose not to make them, but then we will be figuring how we're going to close the institution. The harder change is when, when change is still needed, but it's not life-threatening. You know, it's, a, it, it, it's really interesting. I think this applies not just to institutions of higher education, but there's a wonderful book um, by a fellow named McTaggart who writes about leading um, turnarounds. Hmm. And and he's done these wonderful case studies of institutions that have reinvented themselves, that have been successful at turning around their institution. As he profiled, is there a pattern to what they do? And he said, there, there's this consistent pattern to a turnaround journey. And he, he ends up identifying three stages of the turnaround. So the first stage is financial sustainability. Like If you can't be financially viable, you don't get to do anything else because you're not going to make it. The second phase is often it's that rediscovery of why you need to exist and going mm. back and, and kind of re-embracing your mission and, and then rebranding the, the institution. Stage three, he calls academic revitalization. Um, but in other businesses, it's the deep cultural change that looks at all of your systems and how you function and the changes right. that are needed to build a strong, sustainable future for your institution. He said, actually, that is the most difficult phase of work and most institutions stop at phase two. So I think doing the change in phase one, phase two, it, it turns out, it, while it's painful and it hurts, um, it, it's com- there's a compelling reason to do it because mm-hmm. the option is we won't survive. When you get to that third phase, that says we we want to revitalize the organization and start thinking about deep cultural change of the organization, you know I I understand why many don't complete that phase because mm. because it is so hard, and we're that's the phase that we're in the middle of. So you may want to check back in a few years. Um.
2: We'll have you back. <laughs>
1: to see if we've actually been successful at at doing that yeah
0: well speaking of success last year vanguard had its largest incoming class ever Mm -hmm. only to be eclipsed again by this year's incoming class Mm -hmm. and there have been some amazing successes what's a success story that's been memorable for
1: you Oh, you know, it, actually, this is really phenomenal, because there, there's there been so much good that has happened at the institution. Um, you know, first, that our, our students and their parents stayed with us. Um, we told them we'd get through it. Um, but it, it's one thing to encourage families. It's another thing for them to make the commitment to stay with you. Right. Um, to see the the growth in enrollment has been phenomenal. To see the growing financial strength of the institution and have have the ability to do some other things to help improve the campus and invest it has been amazing. So if I were to pick like one story, because I realize this is this is not a ten hour conversation we're having here, so <laughs> so right. one story is um, it's the success of our veterans center. Hmm. So it. It was uh, in the second year. So we're still in the thick of trying to pull through. And and I had the director of our school for professional studies come to me and say, um, Carol, I think we could be a yellow ribbon school. At that time, I think we had maybe 10 or 15 veterans that had chosen to come back and complete their education at Vanguard. Hmm. And so she had done the research. And I said, so what would it what does it mean to be a yellow ribbon school? What would it take? And, and we looked at, at the resources, what we would have to commit to and said, you know, we can do this. Um, actually, we're doing most of it right now anyway. And it wasn't just that we could do it. It was going back to the early part of the history of the school. That, so we actually were a military base at one point. Yeah, where oh where, interesting, I didn't where, know that. Yeah, where folks came and trained for World War II on our campus, and oh wow, and so we've got photographs of the campus when Bob Hope, you know, was was entertaining the troops, and and we were also one of the first schools in California that was approved to train um, chaplains for World War II. So there is this wow. history in in our institution that ties back to serving men and women in the military. Well, hmm. and and so we said. It's an incredible opportunity to serve the men and women who are returning from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from other places of service. And and it turns out a, a small private institution where students don't get lost, mm. where they are known by their professors, where it's a one-stop shop, they can come into one office and be serviced, um, have access to our counseling center and other services. It's a great place for a veteran to come back and- and re-enter. So we made the decision that we would pursue this. Um, Now, just a couple of years later, we have, I think now we're close to like 80 students that we're serving. that's great. Within the first year, we not only became approved as a yellow ribbon school, we we ended up being in the military times top 100 schools for serving veterans well in the Mm. nation. And I mean, that's still astounding to me, meeting these men and women, hearing their stories, um, seeing that they have found not just a home on our campus, but are able to pursue their dreams um, is an incredibly fulfilling thing to do. And, And this past June, we just dedicated a Veterans Courtyard of Honor for them. That hmm. is a, a great, it's a beautiful courtyard with a fountain that's very peaceful. It's a great place for all of our students to gather, but a great place and a great way for us to honor men and women who've served.
0: You've received a lot of praise in the higher education community and in the media for your leadership. I know, because um, I've, I've seen you at a distance for the last few years and, and we've talked on occasion, I, I know what a humble servant you are. And the desire for you have for Vanguard's success to not be about you. How have you used the recognition and the attention you've received to encourage and develop others?
1: Um well, I you know, I don't know that I've done that well, but um and, and actually I I I don't enjoy when, you know, the cameras show up and they so everyone teases me about, okay, we know you don't like to do this code, but remember this is mm-hmm. for Vanguard. Okay, we'll do this for Vanguard.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um
1: you know, I think part is, and actually, I tell the the story in this chapter of I almost didn't write the chapter. You know, we talked about this earlier. Yeah, we and, were talking about and that. And in part because it it it's so soon, and and this is like very so this is not so humble because it's very you know it's like well what if what if it doesn't stick, right? What if what if we if we don't keep moving forward and you know mm. I'm going to look really bad. So I was having this conversation. I was debating whether or not to write the chapter when they invited me to do it. And it was yeah. actually my tiny little eighty-eight-pound mother that um, you know, once again is right. And and she's telling me, you know, Carol, you need to tell the story because what happened to Vanguard really, when you look at all the details and how quickly the school turned around. So we did end up being placed on probation and phenomenally one year later. The same commission that was debating whether or not to terminate our accreditation actually recognized, in their words, phenomenal progress on every issue and a significant institutional turnaround. Mm. And there is a sense that what happened there wa- went beyond what we could have done, and um, and was, you know, I believe. In fact, I, I said this to the visiting team that came back a year later and looked at our progress, and the the chair of the team. Um, and I prepared my little crib sheet of I'm going to make the case, and you really should consider making a recommendation to remove the sanction. And and before I could do that, she put her pen down and said, "How'd you do this?" And um, and I thought of all those hard mornings driving down the freeway, and the grief, and the loss, and the sacrifice that members in our community made yeah. in order to save the school. And um, we used a, a African proverb a lot which was um, when you pray, move your feet. Mm. And, and, and so I, I, what I said to them is, so, so you've got a lot of evidence of all the ways we moved our feet. You know, so a lot of people worked hard and sacrificed in significant ways to ensure that the school would be here today. But there were also things that happened along the way that I could not make happen. And so there was also this sense that, you know, as a faith-based school, we also prayed. And this this sense that there was also providential help, so I, mm-hmm. I remember saying to the team, so you know, depending on your perspective, we were either extraordinarily lucky or we had providential help. yeah, you can't pick up um in the past few years, you can hardly pick up an issue of The Chronicle of Higher Education or any other higher education publication without reading dire headlines of another school that has either closed or merged or, you know, even state institutions that, that have had their budgets slashed by 20, 30%. So part of it is, and my mother was right, the story needed to be told, you know, regardless of what happens ahead, you know, her, her uh, pithy little statements, well, what happened happened, and 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 you shouldn't have made it, and you did, And you need to tell the story because other people who are in a similar situation need to know that there is hope,
2: Mm.
1: that um, it's possible. It's the same reason that I bought Colin's book the summer of 09, How the Mighty Fall, you know, which was big headline, you know, that was the big, big, bold text, but it was that tagline, why some companies never give up. So the reason I bought the book was I didn't need to know how companies failed, we, we had it in the news, in our faces every day. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to know is those companies that pulled through a crisis, that didn't give up, that persevered, that had the fortitude, the faith um, to keep going mm. and to learn from that. So, you know, if telling Vanguard's story is an encouragement to another president who's, who's saying, you know, we didn't make our enrollment and therefore we're not going to make our budget, And, and we've, we've just had a major hit to the endowment. And I've just got word that, you know, I'm a public school and, and, and we get a lot of support from the state. I'm now looking at having to cut another 20% and, and how are we going to serve our students and do that? If sharing Vanguard's story can be an encouragement to say, you know, we shouldn't have survived, but we did. And you can too. Then it's, it's worth telling the story.
0: You use a word a lot that I find sometimes frightens leaders, and that word is love. Why does a leader need to love?
1: Well, a leader, you know, doesn't have to. And, you know, sadly, we have a lot of examples of leaders who haven't and kind of the devastating consequences that has. But I think, you know, it's interesting, Kuzas and Posner, when they came out with their book, the 10 truths about leadership or the truth of Le- about leadership, the last, and they talked about 10 truths. Yeah. The last one was love. It was the realization. And you look at a lot of research that says really leadership at its best is an affair of the heart. You know, that, that's what they say. I think, especially when a leader is facing a time of crisis, what motivates you to keep going? you know, I'm I'm not sure that you keep, because it's too easy to walk out. It's too easy to say, you know, I'll take my cut. I'll leave. Good luck to the rest of you. I think the deep place that a leader pulls from to say it's worth the risk, it's worth taking the journey. And the deepest satisfaction is when you actually love those that you serve.
0: Who's someone that's been a wonderful coach for you and what did that person do to engage and develop you?
1: Like any leader, there's a long list of people who've invested in our lives, um, you know, from educators to friends to you know people who you paid to be coaches and mentors. When I think you know now of the person that was most influential in my life, it was my father, who, as you know, passed away this Yes, uh, a few months ago. Um, he was a great businessman. He had a great heart. And he, he, wa- it wasn't just these long conversations that we would have about what's important in life and how you work. And he was my, you know, my biggest champion. But I got to see how he lived that across 86 years of his life. So he was not only a great um, role model. He was, he was a great model of what it looks like to finish well, mm. to, to have a rich life that at the end of his life, there was great joy and gladness. And, um, and I, I still hear his voice, you know, like when I said the, the, the day I, I was so tired, I, you know, who's going to, who's going to notice if I don't go and introduce a speaker for the evening? Well, it was uh-huh. my dad's voice that says, you know, you made a commitment, you need to keep it. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a great man of integrity. Mm. Loved the people that he worked with, um, cared for them. Um, he had this sharp mind, this easy wit. He would often we would talk about the fact that you know we need to take the work seriously, but we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. He was a he was probably the greatest model I had of what it looked like to lead with a third class ticket. Mm. Yeah, he, he would be the one that was most influential. It, it was interesting. I, when my father passed away, I was preparing for his memorial service. Mm-hmm. And, and my father was a man of deep spiritual faith and commitment and, and began every day with reading his Bible. And So as I was preparing for his memorial service, I opened up his Bible. I thought, I'm just going to get Dad's Bible and open it up. And I found this handwritten little yellow sticky note in the inside cover. And it was just this little bit of a verse from the ancient writer of Ecclesiastes, and uh, he had written. So I, I now treasure this this little note that I have tucked away. Um, it, it's this bit of verse that says, uh, "He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with a gladness of heart." So I went mm-hmm. back and read the whole. So the whole chapter, the first part of that chapter is about the meaninglessness of riches, if that's all we pursue. But just before that, that closing verse, it, it talks about um, that it's good and, and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his labor. You know, so, so to take joy in your work, um, and, and, and then to say, when, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy him and accept his lot and be happy in his work, it's a gift from God. And if you've gotten to that place where you can take joy in your work and and everything you have, you realize is a gift and you've been given it so you can do something good in the world, then you can finish your days with a deep gladness of heart. And I realized looking back, um, that was exactly what my dad modeled. He was one that had a joyful life and the work he did he, he did it with all of his heart and, and, and lived with this deep gladness and a, and a sense of gratitude. Yeah, he's, he's still my hero.
0: Carol Taylor is the president of Vanguard University and the author of Leading a Turnaround and the Joy of a Third Class Ticket, a chapter appearing in Thriving Leadership Strategies for Making a Difference in Christian Higher Education. Carol, I am grateful that you shared your story with us. Thank you
1: my pleasure thank you
0: there's two things i would challenge you to do after listening to carol taylor's story today the first one is to hop onto a computer and go to vanguard university's website you can get there by going to vanguard.edu And when you get to the homepage, you don't even need to go any further than the homepage, but just take a look at what's on the very first page of the university site when you get there, and you will see all these wonderful stories and images that will scroll by, and you'll see what wonderful things this organization is up to and how their emergence from this crisis and their success since then has really influenced so many lives in a wonderful way. And uh, for those of you who are going through challenging situations as leaders, I would encourage you to go and look at that website as an inspiration. And then secondly, I would encourage you to share this story with a leader you know who is leading during a challenging time or maybe even leading through a crisis. If you know someone who is in that situation, I would encourage you to share this story with them. And that was one of the reasons I know that Carol wrote this story and came and shared this story uh, with us is the hope that this story would be an inspiration to other leaders. And if you choose to do that, I know that uh, I certainly will be grateful. I know Carol would will be as well. And you can do that by sending them to this link, coachingforleaders.com forward slash 55, so again, that's coachingforleaders.com forward slash five-five. That'll take you right to the link for this episode, and that's also the place that you can leave comments about the episode today and Carol's story, and of course, I'll make sure to share all of those comments with Carol as well, and you can, of course, always call in feedback as well, too. Our feedback number is 949 learn or you can send email to me at feedback at coachingforleaders.com. Before I let you go, just a reminder that if you would like updates and more resources and tools that will help to make you a better leader, Go ahead and hop over to our website and subscribe to our newsletter. You can get there by going to coachingforleaders.com forward slash subscribe, and that will get you onto our newsletter list. It will also get you the download for 10 books that will make you a better leader. And Actually, one of those books was mentioned by Carol during this interview, uh, Coozies and Posner's Leadership Challenge. So to find out the other nine books that I'd recommend for you, if you are in a leadership role, definitely hop on to our newsletter. You'll get a lot of tools and resources there, but you'll also get the download for that and the video that goes along with it. And I know that that will be something that will be valuable and helpful for you. Hey, I hope you found this episode valuable today. And if you did and you'd like to get future episodes, the best way, I think, to continue to get future episodes is to hop onto Stitcher. The Stitcher network will ensure that you get updates and our new episodes every Monday. And the best way to do that is just go to coachingforleaders.com forward slash Stitcher. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R. And that will get you signed up to get episodes from Stitcher. Hey, the link for our show notes is on our website. Again, that's coachingforleaders.com forward slash 55. We air this show every Monday. And just a reminder, wherever you are in the world, whatever's on your agenda today, take one idea from this show to engage and develop someone you lead. Have a great week, everybody.